This morning, as we focus specifically on racial reconciliation, um, any of us who have been paying attention to the news in recent weeks have seen that there's these high-profile cases. Uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Eric Gardner in New York City, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, just to name three of the most prominent. Um, That's highlighted deep racial brokenness that still exists in our nation today. Regardless of of, you know, re-litigating or what specifically happened in each circumstance, what that's clearly highlighted is the deep racial tension and brokenness that still exists. So on top of these major questions about um, police brutality, systemic injustice, what that also exposes is the deep prejudices that live deep within our heart and within our mind that maybe don't come out readily until something like this happens on a national scale. As Christians, um, we should be people of, uh, who particularly are passionate about and care about this issue of racial reconciliation. And that's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is always about breaking down the dividing walls of hostility between people groups and the one new people that we are made through the blood of Christ. Like we heard today in our words of encouragement from Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, We who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, creating in himself one new man from the two, making peace, reconciling us by the blood of the cross. So from the very beginning of the church, um, race has been at the center of the reconciliation purchased by Jesus. Um, it's not a, an invention or an emphasis of like the modern era. It's not, a, um, it's not an invention of like the civil rights movement 50 years ago. It's not an invention of abolitionist movements prior to that. It has forever been central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These dividing walls of hostility that, that would otherwise divide us are meant to be broken down. But we know right now, particularly at this moment in our nation, that they're not broken down, at least not like they need to be. And so we need to mourn uh, and we need to repent of the part that we have played in that. Um, In recent weeks, the church planning network that we're part of called the Acts 29 Network, um, the leadership has called uh, the churches of our network to um, talk about this openly with our people also called us to a week of solemn assembly that begins today and carries on through this next week. What is a week of solemn assembly? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God would gather at key moments and they would mourn and they would repent of huge things that were going on uh, in their midst. And so a week of solemn assembly is just that. In Joel 1.14, it says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So this week, that's what we're doing. We're we're calling one another to awareness and to repentance and to prayer. And to help us do that, to help kick that off, especially this morning, um, I've asked a good friend, Marcellus Taylor, to join us uh, just to share from his perspective and his experience. So this is Marcellus Taylor. I'm going to invite him to come on up. Marcellus will be a familiar face to to many of you here at Liberty. Uh, He and his family have uh, worshipped here with us before and been part of other gatherings and opportunities that our church has done. Uh, Marcellus, his wife Denise, their 15-month-old son, Marcellus Jr., uh, are are with us today. Uh, And Marcellus, it would just be really helpful for us to hear from you. How have you experienced uh, racial brokenness, racial tension, overt racism here in this region and, and what do you see as being crucial to the way forward from this together? Cool. 
Thanks, man. Thank you, Matt. Um, before I get started, uh, if we could pray. Um, Eternal Father, let the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, uh, we need your strength to deal with this uh, topic um, that really affects all of us um, in unique ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, I want to say a couple things to the nursery staff. Um, if my son breaks anything, um, just let us know. Uh, <laughs> we'll write a check. We'll put it in the offering basket. Um, Additionally, um, I'm grateful for my wife being here, Denise, um, and I bring greetings from Impact Fellowship, um, a ministry that we're proud to serve, um, where I serve as assistant pastor. Um, and also, uh, the pastor of the church, Tony Jones, wanted me to let you know um, that he brings his greeting. He was here as well, I believe, in the spring sometime. Um, <clears throat> additionally, I want to say um, that I've been in ministry since I was 17 years old, licensed in ministry when I was 17, um, and I've met a lot of great people. I've met a lot of interesting leaders a lot who were not in it for the right reason. But when I say this, and I'm, not, I'm sure he's going to do backflips um, when I say this, but I haven't found too many pastors, too many men of God like your pastor. So let's give a round of applause for Matt, just a true man of God. Um, and, and really a, a testament to that. We were in Cornerstone um, earlier this week, I believe Monday. Um, we were in Cornerstone. And we were talking about, you know, getting our doctor degrees. And he said, before I get my doctor degree, I want to learn how to be a better pastor. And I just, that just touched me. I said, wow, okay. Whew. So he kind of convicted me and, like, encouraged me at the same time. So that's the type of pastor uh, that you have. Um, and to his lovely wife, Shay, hey. Um, so let, let's get started. Let's dive into this. If you have your uh, Bible, I just want to give you this scripture. Um, I believe that Marcellus can give inspiring words, but the Bible gives life-giving words. Um, so I want to go to the, the text. In James 1.19, just one verse, um, and then I'm going to move forward. Um, Matt told me I have a certain time period, and I always learned you don't want to make people happy twice. Happy that you're speaking and happy that you're sitting down. So I promise to obey the laws of the land right now. All right. <laughs> James 1.19, James 1.19, when you have to say word up, all right, cool, 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 all right, thank you, um, <clears throat> James 1.19 says, you know this, my beloved brethren, but let, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, and I'll come back to that scripture, that's going to uh, be our foundation, so in our nation, we see racial tension, um, and, and this is, the, the recent killings are just a window. Now, when I say killings, I'm not just talking about the killing of um, unarmed black males. When I'm talking about the recent killings of public servants with the two officers that were killed in New York, I think that they're just a window into a historical problem that our country has. Um, and we can see with Native Americans with the ravishing of their land, African Americans with slavery, Japanese Americans with internment camps. And unfortunately, we could literally spend all day talking about the issues that different races have had in America. And if just an hour and a half away in Philadelphia, in a section called Germantown, um, it's not coincidence called Germantown. It's called Germantown because it's occupied by Germans. But there were some racial wars between Protestants and Catholics there, um, and we started to see um, a lot of things going on in the city of Philadelphia. And so I believe that the tension rests on this question is one culture better than the other? Or rather, is a culture less valuable because it might include more colorful aspects, not just of the people, but of the activity? And I believe that the brokenness is only 
a manifestation of that continual chipping away that says that your culture is somehow not as good as mine. Additionally, I, I think as far as a historical perspective, that we also have to look at this one fact that the aftermath of this racial brokenness and this racial tension will lead to, I believe, the conditions of certain places. So we don't have to travel far. In fact, all we have to do is go over the bridge and not even go over the bridge where we see how racism plays out. Because if racism is in my heart, then it's in turn going to affect my policies. And so no one can say, well, I'm just racist on Monday, but when I get to work, I work with different races. I'm not really racist because it's going to influence all that we do. And, and by the way, racism is just not a black and white thing. And it's just not something that, and I want to clear, clarify this um, because some of my counterparts don't believe this, but racism um, can come from all races. Um, so I just want to end that myth that racism can come from all races. And in fact, I'll share later uh, what I mean by that. So we look at the places that are divided racially. We also look at the people. And so it affects the places that, that we go. And so that's why people can ask the question to me when I'm in Cornerstone, a professor at the university I work at. I said, what are you doing over here? Um, and I just smiled. <laughs> and I wanted to tell her my wife and I should have stock in Wegmans, how often we are over here in Wegmans. Um, and so, but, you know, it's just that, what I, and I want to know what did she mean? Because she's also a woman who lives in Harrisburg, but she considers herself, and I've had long conversations with her, the intelligentsia. So is she suggesting that somehow that she's able to be on this side of the river and I'm not? But not only does it affect the places, but it affects the people. But here, here's the heart of the matter. It not only affects people and places, but it affects the plight. Is that when I've experienced racism, my view of the world is going to subsequently change. When the color of my skin is the determining factor for a job, it's the determining factor for getting to a particular educational program, then it is going to affect my plight in life. And I believe that if we are going to erase this divide, and I have five seconds, five minutes left, if we're going to erase this divide, we must echo the words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for the entire world. Yes, black, white, brown. And, and check this out. I like this. We are all tri-equal in our need for the cross. What I mean is that no matter what color you are, is that we're tri-equal because of our sin. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. But we're also not only tri-equal because of our sin, we're tri-equal because of our situation. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so all of us without the cross was headed to death. No matter how good you was, no matter how racially superior you might feel that you are, I don't care who you are, we were all headed for death. But here's the part I love, is that the last part of our tri-equality is that we're all equal in the same Savior. Romans 5, 8 says <clears throat> that while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. So in my world, with four minutes left, my world, I've experienced, and this is a large urban environment. I grew up in the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And so growing, growing up there, I remember going to church, and my wife, family, lives off of Lancaster Avenue. And I remember driving down Lancaster Avenue and seeing how socially, economically divided it was. And I always tell people that 11 a.m. in the city of Philadelphia is the most racially divided time in, in the city. Because on one hand, you'll go to one church, and you'll see all black people. On the other hand, all white people. And you might have a 
ethnically diverse church because of the type of music that they sing, not because of the people that they draw. And so 11 a.m. often is one of the most racially divided times. But I've also seen in central PA, I had the privilege of going to Penn State Harrisburg, um, right in Middletown, PA, across the river. Um, And we've experienced a lot of different things as students. But also, I've heard and I've seen, bear witness in my eyes, a a prominent administrator on campus, a woman with a doctorate degree, African-American woman who could sing down this wall of heaven. I'm telling you, she was driving in her luxury car and the police pulled her over. said, man, we're just stopping to make sure this was your car. And she smiled, and, and I'm sure other things proceeded out of her mouth. But at that moment, she pulled over in the parking lot where the Hardee's is, and she just cried. She said, wow, not even an educated affiliate assistant professor, director of student affairs can escape um, this treatment. Later on, that cop would go on to be fired. But also, let me be honest with you, it's the little foxes in our life that cause racial tension. It's those small jokes. It's those, oh, that's a black people thing, or it's a white people thing, or, wow, that's really, insert the ethnic heritage of you. So I've heard somebody say, that's really Jewish of you, or that's really black of you. And I'm like, what does that, what does that mean? Um, and I believe that it's those small attitudes. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. I mean, I believe if we're going to heal racially, we have to identify those little things that we do, all of us included. Even before I got up, I had to pray, Lord, search me if there's any joke, if there's any attitude, if there's any um, particular movie I like because it shows one aspect of a particular culture. And so you might ask with two minutes and 35 seconds on the clock, how do we heal from this? I believe that we heal first by getting in our heads, our heads, our minds that we are all equal in God's eyes. The blood of Christ transcends race. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is neither male or female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And we have to truly believe that in our minds. But also we have to get in our heart that racial reconciliation doesn't need a large conference, but it needs daily conversations. We must be passionate about understanding cultures, embracing cultures, and learning from different cultures. Now, some people will say that, yes, we are all one, and I believe that, but God does not want to get rid of your culture. God, in his unique design, designed you to be Italian, designed you to be Irish because of that culture. And, in fact, if you want to test that theory, my wife and I are open to anyone who has an ethnic heritage that want to share their cuisine. We are open to taste test um, <laughs> with you. So we, I, I would love for everyone to embrace their culture because we can learn from the culture. In fact, yesterday when I was at work, I heard um, a Jewish girl coming out of Bar Mitzvah. She said, man, I love this, sweet Jesus. And I said, okay, she's one step closer. I love it. I love it. But it, it was the idea that learning about their culture. And so all yesterday, I was just asking everyone that would come into the Bar Mitzvah, okay, what does this mean? And what, what does that mean? And just learning about different cultures. But not only do we get it in our heads and our hearts, but we must get it in our hands. Faith indeed, without faith without works indeed is dead. And it brings me back here is that if we're going to bridge the racial barriers with 45 seconds left, 45 slow seconds left, <laughs> if, we're going to, if we're going to bridge those racial barriers, we must go back to James 1.19, where it says, You know this, my beloved brethren, but let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And I love this because in our world, we talk too much. We talk too much. We talk too much. But James says, look, you've got to be quick to hear. 
Um, and I know firsthand what it is to talk too much. Um, I'm in student affairs. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. So I know what it is about talking a lot. But James didn't say, hey, if you want to solve this, speak at a conference. No, he said, if you want to solve this, you got to listen. So I challenge everyone who have friends that are dealing with racial barriers in their life just to listen and see what they have to say. And even if you are not the person causing that racial tension, ask them, hey, can I stand in their place and can you forgive me for what they did? And I think that that will be really powerful. And so James 1.19 says, you know, my beloved brethren, but let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We cannot be angry at the world and we cannot place on the world, we cannot place on every race the consequence or the actions of one person of that race. It's not fair for me to say that all police are inherently bad, all white police. No, because I will tell you, when I felt myself lodged between a Subaru dealership and a bent Jeep, it was a white police officer that saved me, and I'm grateful for him. And at that time, I did not care about his color. It didn't matter to me. He got me out alive. I appreciate that. And so not all cops are bad. And so when we get in our heads and let it burn in our heart and put it to works in our hands, that we might magnify the Lord so that he can draw all men. Yes, white. Yes, black. Yes, Latino. Yes, European. Yes, African. Yes, Asian. All men unto itself so we can see true racial reconciliation. I got five seconds left, Matt. Marcellus is, is, um, is unbelievably gracious to take of his time uh, to be with us this morning. Uh, he and Denise had said, too, they're, they're willing to stick around afterward and talk with, with folks. We know we're just, we're just scratching the surface on what is really a huge issue here. Um, thank you for coming to a room of predominantly Anglo folks and teaching us a little bit about the we world. Are yeah, we are. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, on the welcome table on your way out today, there's a, a few resources you can take with you to help in this week of solemn assembly to help your devotional time and your prayer time. Uh, again, Tuesday night, 7 to 8.30 over at the Canes home. Join us for prayer that night. Before we close, though, I would love for both of us to just take sure. a few moments and, and pray for this particular topic. Um, cool, cool, cool. Do you mind starting us? Sure. Okay. Eternal Father, we love you um, and we need you. Uh, Father, you know um, the uniqueness of every single race, every single culture. But you also know that we're unique in the fact that the cross unites us. So help us, Lord, when we have racial issues to first go to the cross and cling to the cross. Mm-hmm. Father, the, the songwriter says some do the fire and some do the flood, some do the pain, but all do the blood. And so, Father, help us to realize that we all must come to the blood um, in you um, and help uh, that to be the starting point for racial reconciliation. Help your church be more proactive than reactive um, to the things of the world. And help us to continue to pray for the racial divide so that we can see true racial reconciliation. In your name we pray. God, we do. Uh, we look to you because we see how impossible it is for us to do anything, to muster up anything that actually b- brings true reconciliation and peace. Um, and forgive us for thinking that just a new round of initiatives and efforts based on purely human power is going is to be the solution to this. Just as Marcellus prayed, we, we need the cross of Jesus Christ, and we need to live in light of it. We need to see that you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility and that that's always been central to the work that you do, reconciling people to yourself, reconciling people one to another. Thank you for Marcellus. 
Um, thank you for his ministry. Thank you for Impact Fellowship over on the campus of Penn State Harrisburg. Would you bless them? Would you bless the work of their hands? Uh, may we continue to be great allies in this region for the sake of um, people experiencing the fullness of peace with one another through the blood of Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen. All right, if you guys have Bibles, uh, we are continuing our series this morning in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're looking at the Gospel of John starting in Advent, going all the way through Easter this year. Today we're in John chapter 3, uh, John 3, verses 1 through 21. Quick question for you as you're turning there. Um, have you ever been around someone that pretends like they're best friends with a famous person? Have you ever been around someone that pretends like they're best friends with a famous person? If that's never happened to you, let me just illustrate briefly. Back when I lived in Kansas City, um, there was one particular baseball season that uh, I had the opportunity to meet and then hang out with several players of the Kansas City Royals. Uh, It's a long story. It's for another day. uh, But actually, this particular group of players took five friends and myself out to dinner at the Benihana. Of all places, it's kind of random. But yeah, we went to the Benihana with some Kansas City Royals players. Now... I could let that be what it is. I could let that be a cool experience, a good free meal, uh, a nice photo for the scrapbook, or I could blow that way out of proportion and make it into something that it's not. I could make it seem like I'm best friends with those, with those players now. I could you know, send them a Christmas card every year. I could tell the story over and over again. I could track down their phone numbers and call them every week, at least until the restraining order came into effect. If I were to do something like that, it would be because I was drastically misjudging the relationship that existed there. We're not friends, uh, we're not peers, so it would be silly to pretend like we were. And in this text today in the Gospel of John, we see something like that play out. Uh, Nicodemus, who is a teacher and a religious leader of the Jewish people, he enters into this conversation with Jesus. But he approaches the conversation with a drastic misperception of the kind of relationship that exists between the two of them. Nicodemus approaches Jesus like a fellow teacher, like a fellow leader. He approaches Nicodemus like a peer. But Jesus is not a peer with Nicodemus. He's much more than a peer. He's much more than a teacher. How so? Well, we see that in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. So follow along with me as I read. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel 
and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you as we look to you every moment to do deep transformation in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions. We we look to you this morning, God, to break up hardness in our hearts. We look to you to lead us into repentance where that's needed. Uh, Would you be present with us by your spirit? Would you teach us from your word? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So Nicodemus kicks off this conversation. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. And that reveals a lot about his view of Jesus and his view of himself. He's ready to acknowledge Jesus as a teacher and as a leader. Uh, He can't deny the power in these signs that Jesus has been performing. But Nicodemus approaches Jesus as though he were welcoming him into a peer group with the other teachers and leaders of the Jewish people. And even more, he he comes to Jesus at night, which would help him to avoid the embarrassment of having to approach him and treat him as an equal in the daylight in full view of other people. But Jesus is more than a teacher, and there's two specific things we learn about who Jesus is from this text. He's the bringer of new birth, and he's the source of eternal rescue. Bringer of new birth, the source of eternal rescue. So first... Jesus is the bringer of new birth. You notice that Jesus takes this conversation in a completely different direction immediately. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher come from God. Jesus says, hey, actually, instead of talking about that, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And understandably, Nicodemus is instantly confused. Instantly confused. My bet that that each of us in this room uh, have some familiarity with the phrase born-again Christian probably familiar, at least at some level, with that phrase. So this doesn't sound odd to us, but to Nicodemus, this would be odd on two counts. Number one, he had a different idea of what this conversation was going to be. He approached Jesus with his own agenda and plan for this conversation. So this catches him off guard. And then second, he just doesn't understand what this idea of being born again means. How can someone literally be born again? How can a grown man crawl back into his mother's womb and be born a second time like that. So let's hit pause for just a second on this. What's happening here? What's happening in this encounter? Nicodemus is really confused. He even says in verse 9, how can these things be? 
And Jesus has every reason to be clear, to help people understand who he is and and what he's come to do. Jesus has come to, to seek and to save what's been lost. He's come to renew and redeem and restore. So why would Jesus ever want to be cryptic or confusing? He does that because of the way Nicodemus approaches him. So so how you approach Jesus, how you perceive Jesus, really makes all the difference in the world. In many other encounters with other people, Jesus is very gentle, he's very clear, he's very straightforward. And he interacts that way with those who come humbly, with those who come genuinely seeking to understand who he is and what he's there to do. But with those who come with presumption, those who come with assumptions, those who come with pride, not so much. And Nicodemus, coming at night, presuming that their peers, Jesus is going to take this opportunity to show Nicodemus definitively, we are not peers. You've misjudged this, Nicodemus. You've misjudged this drastically. There is a we. There's a we involved here. Nicodemus just isn't part of the we. Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, Nicodemus, you have not received that testimony. And then Jesus kind of chides him a little bit, kind of like, kind of like rubs it in a little bit. He's like, oh, oh, you can't understand this, Nicodemus. I thought you were the teacher of Israel. I thought you were the one that knew it all. I thought you were the leader of the Jewish people. Aren't we peers? And what Jesus is doing there, in all love and all care for Nicodemus, he's putting him in his place so that he might genuinely understand so he might actually see who he is and who, and who Jesus is. He's saying to Nicodemus, put down the presumption. Because if you can't understand this, how in the world are you ever going to understand the deeper mysteries of God which I have come to reveal? So Jesus' approach here and his words, they have everything to do with where Nicodemus is at. He's a well-educated, well-respected leader, and yet he completely misses Jesus for who he is. So what hope does Nicodemus have? He has none in himself. He has none in himself. He must be born again. And when Jesus speaks about the new birth here, uh, he's talking about what Christians sometimes refer to, this big fancy word, regeneration. That's what Jesus is talking about. And what that means is that we are so corrupted, we're so broken, and even more than that, we're so dead because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, that just a, a mere fix here or there, a tweak to our life here or there. That's never going to suffice. We have to be made completely over again. We have to be born again. And Jesus references in here being born of water and the Spirit. When he says that, that's actually an echo of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. That's what regeneration is. Uh, It's the birth of of water and the Spirit, the new birth. God himself takes the initiative to cleanse us. And he takes the initiative to put his own Spirit in us. He rips out our hard hearts of stone and he puts instead within us soft hearts of flesh, which enable us to trust him and to follow him. Nicodemus has so uh, overestimated himself, 
He so underestimated Jesus and so misjudged their relationship that he needs to be born again. And really the same exact thing is true for every single one of us in this room. We might observe things about Jesus. We might be intrigued. We might even be appreciative of who Jesus is, of his teachings, of his example. Maybe we even in certain areas presume to think that we're like Jesus. We love people, so we're like Jesus in that. We have good morals. We care about people, so we're like Jesus in that. But what we have to learn from Nicodemus here is that we will never enter the kingdom of God. We will never become part of God's people unless we are born again. But this is the great news. That's the work that Jesus has come to do. That's the work that Jesus accomplishes in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Faith in him means we are cleansed. It means we are regenerated. It means we are born again. And earlier in John, in John chapter 1, John says that to all who receive him, to all who call on his name with faith and trust in who Jesus is, he gives them the right to become children of God. So this new birth is into a new family. We get to become children, sons and daughters of God the Father. And it's Jesus who is the one that brings that new birth. Now second, what else we learn from this text? Jesus brings new birth. He also is the source of eternal rescue. It's the source of eternal rescue. So this new birth, it has huge implications for our lives here and now. And we'll talk just a little bit more about that here in a second. But it's also critical to see uh, Jesus isn't just concerned with the here and now. He's the source of eternal rescue. One of the most recognizable verses in the Bible, John 3.16, it's right in the middle of this passage. Even if this is your first day around Christians or your first day around the Bible, my bet is that you recognize that reference. And maybe you're like, yeah, doesn't that have something to do with my favorite sports team winning or like my favorite musician putting on a good show? I always see people holding up signs at these big events. I don't know what it means, but I'm familiar. Okay, this is a famous verse because it so beautifully and so succinctly states the heart and the plan of God. God's love for the world, as Marcellus pointed out, not just one particular group or subset, but the world, moved him to give his only son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So that's the eternal rescue mission of God, God sending Jesus in love to rescue. Okay, what is Jesus rescuing from? He's rescuing from condemnation and death. So let's make sure that we see the whole picture here. Let's make sure we don't just take uh, one particular verse, like John 3.16, and read it in isolation or pit it against other messages or, or themes or truths that are in Scripture as well. Let's see the whole thing. God's love prompts the rescue mission of Jesus. And Jesus comes into the world not to condemn. He comes into the world to save. So how sad is it That as Christians, one of the most widespread perceptions that people have of Christians is that we are people of condemnation. That shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the case when Jesus has come not to point the finger, but to rescue from the condemnation. He is the answer to humanity's greatest problem. And he has come to offer the answer to humanity's greatest problem. But in order to see the beauty, in order to see the need, in order to see the worth of that, we have to first see that we do have an eternal problem that requires an eternal rescue. 
And it's that, that we do stand condemned apart from Him. But though we stand condemned, though we are dead, though our sin against God would lead to eternal punishment out of God's love, He intervenes. He intervenes. How does He intervene? Jesus talks about it as He talks to Nicodemus here. He intervenes by lifting up Jesus. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And Jesus is first lifted up in His death on a cross to take the penalty of sin upon himself. Three days later, he's lifted up again in his resurrection from the dead. And then 40 days after that, he's lifted up a third time into heaven. See, the most obvious way that Jesus is not a peer of Nicodemus is that Jesus is no mere man. He's God. He's also God. He's the one who has descended from heaven. He's the one who ascends back into heaven. And we sang about it in that song together this morning. As fully man and fully God, Jesus does what only man should, but what only God could. Only man should, only God could. Only humanity should bear the punishment for sin. Only humanity is responsible for that. But we're helpless. So only God could accomplish a new birth and a rescue on this eternal scale. Only God could take the initiative to forgive people of their sin by taking the penalty upon himself. And that's what Jesus does when he is lifted up on the cross and lifted up again in his resurrection. Only man should, only God could, only Jesus did. Jesus is the source of eternal rescue. Okay, And then this passage ends on a familiar theme for John, the contrast of light and darkness. If you've been with us in this series, you've already heard us talk about this several times. The contrast between light and darkness. In Jesus, light has come into the world. And we see in him this perfect picture of all that God intends. We see how, what it looks like to, to worship God in truth. We see what it is to, to do relationships well with other people. Um, we see what it is to love and care for um, other human beings. But the judgment even against morally upright and religiously proper people like Nicodemus, is that people love the darkness rather than the light. And then to compound that even more, rather than recognize the folly of loving the darkness rather than the light, people in darkness want to stay in the darkness. They don't want to come into the light. They don't want to be exposed for who they are and the evil that exists in their hearts. But John says, Whoever does what is true comes into the light so that the work of God in them, the work of God through them, might be seen. What are we talking about? What is John talking about here at the end of this passage? He's talking about repentance. And repentance begins by acknowledging that left to ourselves, we love the darkness rather than the light. Repentance begins by acknowledging that we'd rather stay in the darkness We'd rather not have our evil words and actions and thoughts and motives known or revealed. But repentance is then seeing Jesus as the true light and stepping into that light, stepping into the light of his exposure that we might be rescued out of the condemnation and death under which we would otherwise stand. Jesus has this refrain in his ministry It's what he even begins his ministry proclaiming. We see especially in the Gospel of Mark. He says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's how we experience the new birth that he brings. That's how we experience this eternal life that he has purchased for us. So 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're just considering what it is that Christians believe. This is, this is it. This is central to that. And if you've never done that, if you've never seen the darkness in your heart, if you've never stepped into the light, it's something that every single person has a need to do and experience. And I would invite you to repent and to trust in Jesus. Jesus came and see this in him. He came not to condemn. He came to save us from the condemnation we would otherwise be under, the death that we would otherwise be in. He came to save us from that. So you don't have to live in condemnation anymore. You don't have to live in the darkness anymore. You can step into the light. Now, many of you in the room have already done that. But that doesn't mean that, that we're done repenting. Not even close. Not even close. Born-again people need to relearn how to live. We need to relearn how to live. And though we're given a new heart and a new birth, and some of you know this well, I know this well, it takes a lifetime to figure out how to live in light of that new birth. So along the way, there's a lot of repentance involved. Christians are a people of ongoing repentance. And really, more and more, as we see just how wide that gap is between what God has called us to and what we're actually able to accomplish on our own. So in light of this text, and in light of thinking specifically about this huge issue of racial reconciliation, let's let the Word of God call us to repentance in two specific things. First, repent of our woefully insufficient view of who Jesus is. Let's repent of our woefully insufficient view of who Jesus is. Like Nicodemus, we have to wake up to where we've misjudged Jesus. He's not just important. He's the source of salvation. He's not just a teacher. He's the one who brings new birth. He's the light. He is life itself. And as it relates to our view of race, we need to repent of our woefully insufficient view of Jesus as the bringer of reconciliation and peace. He comes to make one people out of many. So to resign ourselves to think that the current experience of racial brokenness, racism, racial tension is the best that it's going to be. That's to grossly underestimate Jesus as the one who actually does accomplish reconciliation and peace by the blood of his cross. And, And we can't be naive enough to think that that's easy or that that's simple. It's not. But may we always give Jesus more credit than we give sin. He's more powerful than sin. Amen. Amen. Eternally, heaven is a group of ethnically and racially diverse people in complete and perfect harmony with one another. And we declared that together in the call to worship this morning from Revelation 7. That's where the trajectory of God's redemption takes us. But beautiful as that is, Jesus isn't just concerned with something that is distant and future. Sometimes we focus on eternity at the cost of ignoring the present. But eternal life, though it is a destination, is not just a destination. It's actually a character of life with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, that begins now. Jesus is concerned with the physical world, the material world, the lives of real human beings within time and space. So may we not merely see this as some distant and future picture, but may we long for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it will be perfectly in heaven. And second, as we repent about our woefully insufficient view of Jesus, 
Let's also repent for a gross overestimation of ourselves. A gross overestimation of ourselves and the comfortable stagnation that comes with that. Nicodemus overestimated himself. Okay, so do we. So do we. The fact that a picture of salvation is new birth and that Ezekiel 36 is a picture of what's needed in our hearts, that God has to rip out a heart of stone and put within us a heart of flesh. That means we should never overestimate ourselves again. That's how drastic the action of God had to be in our own heart, in our own lives. We weren't just broken people needing to be fixed. We were dead people needing to be born again and remade completely. So we can't overestimate ourselves, and and nor should we fool ourselves into thinking that we've already become so Christ-like that we don't need to be challenged and corrected in some substantial ways. Perfect example from Scripture. The Apostle Peter, even after he becomes the leader of the early church, has to be corrected and challenged in substantial ways. What ways? Race relations, for one. In Galatians 2, he's eating with non-Jewish people. He's eating with Gentile men and women until other Jewish people come from Jerusalem. And then he's like, I don't know them. It's the left foot of fellowship. You know? he, gives the, he gives them the left foot of fellowship in that moment. And he has to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul for doing that. So when it comes to us, and when it comes to overestimating ourselves, when it comes to the specific topic of race relations, let's acknowledge that left to ourselves, you and I are more like Hitler than we are like Jesus. And I know that's blunt, but I think it's important to state it that drastically sometimes because it shows us our desperate need for new birth in Jesus. Left to ourselves, we are more like Hitler than we are like Jesus. We need Jesus' eternity of one people made up of the many. We don't need our own cheap imitation of that. So may we never lower the bar to what's achievable by our own strength. And I've personally, in my own life, been awakened to how comfortably stagnant I've been in this particular issue of race relations in our country. Um, I'm not an overt racist. I've never been called one by anybody. Uh, I don't harbor a conscious superiority complex of one people over another. But because I'm part of the majority culture in our nation, I've assumed way too much. I've assumed way too much. I haven't understood what other people experience at the depth that I need to understand that. And so, littered in my heart and mind are these subtle and subconscious hints of racism. And I was talking about that actually with Marcellus earlier this week. One of the things that kind of opened my eyes to this in this past year was that until this year, I had never considered before that when I was growing up, all my parents ever had to tell me about how to interact with the police was to just be respectful like I would with any other adult. That was the extent of training I received as a young man growing up, part of the majority culture. Marcellus, on the other hand, and many men and women like him, that don't come from the majority culture, had to uh, have a very long and comprehensive and specific list of actions of here's what to do and here's what not to do when you talk to or interact with police officers. Always put your hands on the steering wheel. Never reach for anything, even your ID, without asking for permission first. Always refer to them as sir or ma'am. Never disrespect, never even disagree with anything that a police officer says to you. I never had to be told those things. 
I don't, I didn't even, I would never have thought the need to teach my daughter that. But Marcellus and Denise, they have to think about teaching that to Marcellus Jr. because of the world in which we, in which we live. So even if you're not an overt racist, even if you don't harbor a superiority complex, may we never lower the bar to self-control and to cordial interactions. The goal is not self-controlled racism. The goal is not exchanging pleasantries with people of other ethnicities while these huge systemic injustices exist. The goal is that we'd live in light of the new birth, this eternal life that we have in Christ, that we taste the substance of where all this is headed for the people of God, that all types of people will worship in perfect union around God's throne. And it's not a coincidence that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. It's not just the religious Jewish people like Nicodemus. It's everybody. By his blood, he's purchased a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. That doesn't mean the differences are gone. It just means that the differences now are beautiful and redeemed, and they don't lead us to fear and separation, but to beauty and life together. So wherever we have loved the darkness, may we step into the light of Jesus. May we repent of our of our woefully insufficient view of Jesus as the one who brings reconciliation and peace. May we repent of our gross overestimation of ourselves and the comfortable stagnation that comes with it. And may we really see Jesus and believe in Jesus as he truly is. He's more than a teacher. He is the bringer of new birth. He is the source of eternal rescue. And in this great rescue, out of condemnation and death, He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. So as he saves us from ourselves, may he continue to break down the dividing walls of hostility that still exist in our world. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we look to you for what we could not hope to accomplish We are dead in our sin until you rip out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Until you cleanse us, until you put your spirit in us. Until we are born again. May we look to you as the bringer of new birth, as the source of eternal rescue. May we not underestimate you, particularly underestimate you as the bringer of reconciliation and peace. Would you bring it? Because we long for it more than we experience in our nation right now. Would you heal Would you heal the wounds? Would you heal the hurt? God, we as a a culture have inherited so much of that from the past, but I pray that you would make us faithful in this time as your people in this moment, in this place, that we would long for the experience of harmony and peace and reconciliation with other men and women through the blood of Christ. And we come to this table this morning remembering that that you say you you will taste of this again in the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, the picture is that we are all united through your blood around your throne. So as we come to the table, may we long for that day, and may we see that you have accomplished through your death and resurrection the, the substance of what is needed to make that possible. Meet with us as we come, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.